Today on Pence Exchange, Money and Banking in Antebellum America. Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today we will be joined by Brian Kutzinger. He's an assistant professor of economics at the Norris Vincent College of Business at Angelo State University and a research assistant professor at the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. He received his bachelor in economics from the University of Colorado at Boulder and his master's and PhD in economics from George Mason University. His research focuses on the free banking era in the United States and the political economy of inflationary finance. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. The history of money is the history of human exchange. We may now take for granted the existence of national monies, but our current monetary system anchored around central banks is a product of 20th century political economy developments. Today, we will be joined by Brian Kutzinger, who will discuss about his research on the money provision in North America in the 19th century. So I want to start by asking you a general question about the nature of money. What is unique about it? What makes money different from other commodities or goods? Can we even define money as a good? Sure. So great question. I think uh, it's useful to start off by thinking about what what we define money as. And so most economists, I think, would, would give three definitions. Uh, money is a medium of exchange. That is, it's the thing that we use to trade with, with one another. Uh, money uh, can be a store of value. Uh, and money uh, also can serve as the unit of account. Those are the three sort of textbook definitions. Now, in my view, I think only the first of these is is essential uh, is the essential feature of money. Uh, many other goods can store uh, uh, can serve as a store of value. So Rembrandt paintings, uh, very good bottles of wine, uh, these can all be stores of value. So it can't be that uh, what makes money unique is that it's a store uh, of value. And then as far as the unit of account goes, it's it's not strictly speaking correct to say that money. Uh, is the unit of account money is really the medium of account and a specific quantity of the money uh, is what serves as the unit of account. Now, there is a, a strong incentive for these two things to align. Uh, obviously, if you're in the United States, uh, where the commonly accepted medium of exchange is the dollar, you probably wouldn't want to post your prices uh, in euros, for example, because uh, you just add an extra layer of complication of, of your customers exchanging with you. So you're likely to lose customers uh, who, who would go to a store who post uh, to, to the store that posts prices in, uh, in dollars. But even there, the the two uh, those two aspects of money, the unit of account and, and the commonly accepted medium of exchange, those can separate during hyperinflation. So uh, in cases like uh, Weimar Germany, where uh, prices are increasing quite rapidly, it no longer makes to post prices in terms of uh, the rapidly depreciating Deutschmark. Instead, you could post prices in dollars, but you still exchange uh, in Deutschmark. So uh, the, the essential feature of money is that it is this commonly accepted medium of exchange, which means that it's a good that people acquire to, to purchase other goods. And, and because of that, it's, it's one side of every transaction uh, in our economy. And that, and that feature uh, has very important 
macroeconomic implications. So a couple articles that I think are very, uh, very interesting on this are Leland Yeager's Essential Properties of the Medium of Exchange and the Cash Balance Approach to Depression. So I think it is a, a unique good. Uh, it permits transactions that, that wouldn't otherwise be possible uh, owing to the costs of, of barter and acquiring uh, information. Uh, so uh, as far as it being a good or not, when we think about a, a something being a good in economics, we tend to think of it as something that uh, is uh, something that more is preferred to less. Uh, that really is kind of the definition of, a, of an economic good. Uh, and if we go look at the data here, uh, the amount of, of money that people demand does seem to depend on the opportunity cost. So one way of thinking about the opportunity cost of, of holding money uh, is the rate of return on other assets. So as the rate of return on other assets go up, people tend to hold less money. Uh, that's just a, 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 an implication of a downward sloping demand curve. Inflation, of course, being another part of the opportunity cost of holding money. Uh, money also depends uh, on the amount of money that people demand also depends on their income. Uh, we, we think that uh, transactions are proportionate to income. In other words, as your income goes up, you probably engage in more transactions. And to engage in more transactions, you need money. So the demand for money increases uh, with income. In other words, uh, money is a normal good. So it has many of the aspects that we think of uh, when, we, when we think of other goods in a microeconomic context uh, in that uh, it has a negatively inclined uh, demand curve and that it responds positively to uh, increases. Uh, in income. Now, of course, one empirical challenge is that the stock of monetary assets is is always changing. Uh, it's changing uh, uh, due to financial innovation. So assets that were, were perhaps maybe didn't even exist before, but they exist now and they're very liquid, uh, or assets that did exist before, but were not very liquid, liquid and now have become very liquid. So that's one way. Uh, financial regulation uh, is a, is a, is uh, one thing that can determine what the stock of monetary assets uh, is because it can influence uh, incentives in such a way for people to find uh, ways around the regulation. Uh, so that that does make it difficult to measure the quantity of money, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that money isn't uh, a, a, a isn't unique or or isn't uh, a good. That's just a, an empirical challenge that that we face, and of course there are. Uh, uh, ways of getting around that. So sort of in some, what makes money unique is its role of a, as a medium of exchange. Uh, it's different from other goods in that it lacks its its own market. In other words, because it's one half of every transaction, if people want to get, if, they're, if people are holding more money than they currently want to hold, it's not that money has its own market where the price of money can adjust, like say the price of an apple, the price of apples. Instead, the price of all other goods that can be exchanged for money has to uh, has to adjust or has to change. So it is unique in that sense. Uh, and it's a good that provides valuable transaction services and people's behavior with respect to that good is consistent with general microeconomic theory. Historically speaking, of course, nowadays uh, we are in a weird uh, time in the sense that we use dollars, we use euros, we use national monies. But historically speaking, we use more kind of private monies or monies back in other assets. So I know this is a loaded question today, but what would you say are the merits and cons of private money, theoretically speaking? Or in other words, what are the justifications in favor or against it? So I think the, the, the general pro of private money would be the argument that, uh, that most economists make, make for the, pro of, of, uh, the pros of privatization, which is that 
the market seems to be pretty good at uh, uh, producing goods and services, uh, in part because uh, assuming you've got good institutions, incentives are aligned in such a way for uh, people to provide uh, valuable goods and services at the least cost. Uh, and markets communicate knowledge in such a way that makes it so that uh, uh, people participating in this can produce valuable goods and services efficiently, and, and money in that sense is, is no different. But I think it's important to distinguish between uh, what we might call outside money or, or base money uh, from privately issued inside money. So if we think about the 19th century, we're on a commodity standard. Of course, that commodity is, is largely gold, uh, and that's true for other countries as, uh, as well. Uh, and so when we think about that sort of system, uh, it, it's largely governed by uh, supply and demand. Uh, so there's really no need for central control. That's one of one of the advantages, right? Uh, one of the challenges that that say our current monetary policymakers face is trying to essentially figure out what is the correct quantity of base money to produce. That's what central banks. Uh, one of the things that central banks do. So the the Federal Reserve is is in part responsible for determining what is the appropriate quantity of of base money. Uh, the euro does the same thing. So all, all these central banks have to do this. Now, that, of course, introduces the problem that most economists are familiar with of dealing with these knowledge and incentive issues of, of central control. So one advantage of a commodity money system or a privately produced outside money system uh, is that you don't have to have any central control over it. You can harness incentives and knowledge in such a way so as to guarantee that you get uh, the, the uh, optimal quantity uh, of money. And if we look historically, what that meant is that uh, we tended to get long-run price stability. But here's one of the cons. If we look, we see long-run price stability, but we do see a great deal of year-to-year fluctuations. And and that is, is somewhat uh, understandable in the sense that it's not as if uh, gold mines can instantly produce a lot more gold if there's all of a sudden an increase in demand uh, for gold. And as a, and as a result, price is going to have to adjust to, to clear that market. Uh, another con that you might hear about commodity money, and it's related to the point that I just made, which is that uh, it's not really possible for the quantity of outside money to adjust very quickly uh, when necessary. Uh, and uh, as a result, the, the argument goes, uh, being on a commodity money standard could actually uh, promote macroeconomic instability rather than promote macroeconomic stability. Uh, but I think historically, if we look uh, around the world and we take a, a broader perspective than just the United States, we see that some countries actually found a way to deal with this problem. So Canada here, I think, is sort of a, a quintessential example of this. Canada's banking institutions were such that uh, they did not really suffer from the financial crises that plagued the United States financial system during the 19th century, despite the fact that both countries were on a commodity standard. They were on a gold standard. So I think it's possible to deal with those sorts of problems under the right institutional conditions. It just happens to be the case that for the U.S., uh, we didn't really we didn't have those those correct, uh, in my view, correct institutional uh, conditions. So that's the outside money part. The privately issued inside money, that is bank issued money, most of us are familiar with that. Deposits. So deposits in our checking account, that is, a, is an example of, of privately uh, created uh, money. And, and we tend to think that banks are in a pretty good position uh, to manage deposit creation. They know their customers better 
uh, than say some central authority would. They know how to manage the risk and and uh, whatnot. Now, in the past, uh, in the U.S., banks also used to issue uh, bank notes. That's another form of of private inside money. Of course, today. Uh, that's not true. Most of us, if you're in the United States, for example, the currency you use are, are Federal Reserve notes. If you're in Europe, it's going to be uh, the euro. If you're in Mexico, it's the peso. Uh, so by and large, private banknote creation is sort of uh, gone by the wayside and governments have taken that over. But there's not really a reason to think that that's something that can't be provided by the market. Historically, it, it certainly it certainly was. Uh, in the U.S., uh, it was it was highly regulated, and we can we can get into that. Uh, but it was subject to reserve requirements and taxes and denomination restrictions. And I think many of those uh, those sorts of regulations probably, uh, despite maybe being well intentioned, probably actually caused more uh, problems than they solved. So it's not really obvious why we need uh, a, a currency monopolization. Well, certainly, it's not obvious why we couldn't rely on banks to create paper currency in the same sense that we rely on them to create uh, uh, deposits. Uh, but I think it's important to sort of distinguish these two things. So a privately provided base money versus privately provided inside money. We, we live in a world of privately provided inside money. The question is, is, is what would be the cons and the pros of going to a world of, of privately provided outside money? Going back to our discussion of the empirics about how to measure money and about the merits of history, I would like to go straight a bit on our discussion before we dwell on monetary history itself. And I would like to ask you specifically about how to do proper monetary history, which is what you do. So one big obstacle I find in doing it, doing monetary history, is that it's kind of hard to control the causal effect of different variables. I mean, this is true for everything, but I found it especially true for money, specifically because as we are been talking, the very definition of the thing that we are being measured is kind of difficult. So besides, it's kind of challenging to just keep everything else constant. Many changes occur at the same time. We're talking about outside, inside money, gold, gold-backed money. There's not just gold, it's gold or silver or an index of money. Then you have also pseudo-monies and you introduce credit, less liquid financial instruments, and then you introduce the government and it's kind of a mess. Then there are an amount of combinations. So how possible, how helpful can monetary history be in enlightening us about the nature of money? So, as you mentioned, I think this is a challenge that we we face no matter what sort of research we're doing, whether we're doing temporary policy research uh, or if we're just looking back at history. So this the the issue of identification and, and causal inference is something that we're always uh, struggling with, and of course, uh, dealing with the the limitations with historical data and whatnot, I think makes things certainly more challenging. And and my answer to that uh, is partially. Uh, in, uh, influenced by uh, having just recently reread uh, the book uh, Fragile by Design by uh, Calamiris and, and Haber. I was rereading it in preparation for my money and banking class in the fall. And one of the things that I think they do in that book is they illustrate how a combination of, of solid economic reasoning, uh, economic theory, and a, a a complete or a deep understanding of the institutional details of what you're looking at, combined with the empirics that you can generate. You know, you, we have the caveats of what the data can tell us and the limitations and et cetera, but you, you combine that with a deep understanding of the institutional details and a solid uh, a framework of economic theory to help us make sense of those details. And I think that's one way we can, uh, can overcome the sort of problem that you are uh, that you're that you're getting at. 
But uh, I think one way to um, I think one way to think about what we can learn from from history uh, is, as I mentioned in, in the in our the prior uh, the prior question that you asked, is is going beyond. And I say this as 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 an American is going beyond the American experience and looking at uh, other countries' experiences. So so one. You know, take something like uh, Canada as a great example. In, in, in Fragile by Design, for, uh, for instance, they talk uh, quite a bit about uh, how well Canada, Canada's banking system performed. I think the first thing to say is, okay, is uh, is financial instability or private you know, financial instability and private money have they always been uh, two things that that have gone together, or are they things that? Uh, seem to go together in cases like in the United States, but for whatever reason in Canada or, or maybe other countries like Scotland, they seem to work rather well. So the first thing I think is not so much to get into the into these questions of of teasing out cause and effect, but just at the at the first thing is just sort of grouping things I- into different buckets and saying, okay, so Canada's on a gold standard, U.S. is on a gold standard. U.S. is subject to lots of financial crises. Canada isn't, right? So that we know, that, like we know that, like that doesn't necessarily require us to to do any causal inference or anything like that. And so the question becomes: All right, what evidence can we look for? What evidence that exists, and how can we use economic theory with that evidence to try to understand why there was these two very drastic experiences, despite this underlying similarity? And 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 so doing, I think that helps us understand the role that different sorts of financial institutions, and in the case of of some of the points made in Fragile by Design, political institutions, how those things work together to create sort of this political economy of of finance. And so I think that's one way we can uh, learn from history and, and perhaps draw some conclusions that are applicable today, despite the caveats that we have to keep in mind when we're doing that sort of research. So you've done research on colonial and early North American monetary markets. Could you tell us a bit about how money worked back then? I know, for example, imperial Spanish coinage was a standard for international transactions. I've done a bit of research on that. But what happened here in local markets? What could you say? What was money for the English and the French colonists? Sure. So uh, you had coins. Uh, as you mentioned, there was the, the Spanish coins. Uh, but the French, for example, had also minted their own coins. So you had you had coins partly serving uh, as money. Uh, you also had bills of exchange issued by merchants. These were essentially uh, ways to finance the movement of goods uh, and say, for example, in the case of Canada, moving them through uh, the process of production and then, and then eventually exporting, but also bills of exchange to finance the international transportation uh, of goods. So clearly there was a there was an important link between money and financial uh, 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 excuse me, uh, money and international trade. So, for example, if you're exporting a bunch of goods, right, gold is going to come back in or silver, depending on the standard. The commodity money is going to come back into the country that's doing uh, the exporting. So that was one thing that uh, or one way or one item that served as money uh, in the American colonies. Uh, you had bills of credit uh, that were issued by colonial governments. Uh, so these were essentially um, short-term debt instruments issued by the government that essentially promised to pay the bearer uh, gold at some at some future date. So if the government was waiting for its tax revenues to come in through, say, uh, tariffs, uh, you would hold on to this bill of credit, 
And then eventually when you wanted to turn it in, you could. Uh, you might not necessarily have to. You could It could keep circulating uh, with, with different people. Uh, so that would uh, also be used uh, as, um, as money. We do have a, I have a paper with Vincent uh, Geloso uh, looking at uh, playing card money. So uh, the, the French colonial government actually uh, ran out of, of specie uh, to pay the soldiers. Uh, and so they decided to uh, essentially issue money on the backs of playing cards. So this was money that, uh, uh, that, that could be, um, we would exchange hands. And then eventually the idea is that you would show up with your playing card that was sort of an IOU to some quantity of, of specie and you could, you could turn that in. But, you know, in, in the colonies at this point in time, uh, there's no banks. So what does that mean? That means there's no bank issued money. So we have both the, the coins, but then also these bills of exchange, bills of credit, or in the case of the French experience, money printed on the back of playing cards. These sorts of things served as sort of uh, uh, improvised forms of money uh, to meet the needs of trade. Okay, moving forward into history, I mean, into the history of monetary institutions in North America, you've also done research on banking institutions and the beginning of the banking institutions in the U.S. So one thing that I've always been fascinated about the U.S. is that just the sheer number of banks that it existed here after independence. Like just to give an example, in Mexico, in the middle 19th century, there was just one national bank. By that time in the U.S., there were hundreds by every state. So what would you say are the main determinants of U.S. financial growth in the 19th century? So th this is a question that my uh, co-author, uh, Louis Wanet, and I are looking at in the case of free banking, which we can talk a little bit more uh, about here shortly. Uh, so that's one way in which um, uh, one way in which financial development occurred. Uh, the other was that uh, if you wanted to start a bank, and we'll talk about this shortly, if you wanted to start a bank in uh, the, the early republic, uh, what you would have to do is you would have to go uh, to your state legislature and, and have them essentially grant you a charter. They didn't really have general incorporation laws uh, at this point. So actually banking sort of gets a, a bit of a slow start um, right after the formation of the United States and, and up through uh, to, the, to the early 1830s. And it's, it's after that point that we really start to see uh, the explosion of banks that you, uh, that you mentioned. Uh, and we see that occurring both um, both in the in the so-called free banking states, and we can talk more about what that is, but also in the uh, but also in the case of the of the states that retained the old uh, the old chartering system. Now, in, in our paper, uh, which is still definitely a working paper, our our preliminary results do find uh, we haven't looked at the number of banks. What we've been looking at primarily is what's what happened to credit and what happened to bank issued money. And we do find that essentially liberalizing the creation of, of banks uh, does seem to have had a, a positive effect on, on both bank credit and the volume of deposits and bank notes. In other words, it, it looks like prior to some of these, the easing of some of these restrictions, banks were behaving uh, both as, as monopolists in the sense that they were restricting credit, but also as, as monopsonists in the sense of, of issuing too few uh, liabilities. Uh, there's also a, a recent paper in the Journal of Political Economy by Carlson, Crea, and Luck, uh, and it looks at uh, uh, financial performance during the national banking era. So this is an era that starts in the Civil War and it's after the free banking era. Uh, and they find some similar results, which is that the easing of, of entry restrictions into banking did promote uh, an expansion of credit. Of course, it also increased uh, risk-taking as well. That's not necessarily uh, uh, 
a, a bad thing in the sense that uh, if they were being too too if they were, in, if they were, uh, if they had too little risk before, they might have had less than the optimal amount of risk, and so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But of course, there were some issues with the U.S. financial system that that uh, that made that um, that made that worse. So I think overall, you have an expanding economy in the U.S. in 19th century, both in terms of agriculture, manufacturing, and and whatnot. That requires credit, uh, and so there was a general tendency, I think, to uh, expand that, and different states dealt with that in in uh, in different ways. You were talking about the free banking era in general, about the national banking era. So let's talk a little bit about the categorization of these eras. What makes the free banking era free compared to what happened before or after? What what, what is different? Okay, so as I as I mentioned in, uh, uh, just a few seconds ago, initially in the United States, if you wanted to create a, a bank, well, let me take a step, actually another step back, chartering banks was left to the state legislatures. So if you wanted to charter a bank, you, we did not have general incorporation laws. Instead, uh, myself and perhaps the people I'm going to start the bank with, we have to go to our legislature. So if we're located in New York, we'd have to go to the New York legislature and essentially ask them to grant us a charter through uh, the legislative process. Okay, uh, this was the this was the chartering system. Uh, now, as you might imagine, uh, this process uh, was in many cases subject to a great deal of rent seeking, uh, particularly uh, in uh, New York. Uh, anyone interested in reading about that uh, should should take a look at at the work of of Howard Bodenhorn at Clemson. He's written a couple of books on this era and has some great uh, some great evidence on on just how corrupt this whole. Uh, system uh, system was, uh, but basically, what the free banking era did, and, and the free banking era starts in uh, 1837. So uh, Michigan is the first state to pass uh, free banking, and then in the next year, both New York and Georgia pass free banking. Now there's a panic in 1837, a financial crisis in 1837 that that goes up into the early 1840s, and so there's sort of a pause in the in this trend towards free banking, but then eventually. You have more states adopted, and by the eve of the Civil War in 1860, the majority of U.S. states adopted uh, free banking. So what was free about the free banking? Well, essentially what it said was that anyone or, or more specifically any group of people, because typically you had to have a minimum number of people, could start a bank provided they met certain minimum conditions. They did not have to go to the legislature to obtain a charter. Now, these conditions varied state by state, but in general, they had minimum capital requirements. They had reserve requirements for their notes, but but specifically the thing that was very unique to the United States uh, in this in in the free banking was that the notes had to be backed by state issued or U.S. Treasury bonds. So what does that mean? It means that if you and I started a bank and we wanted to issue say one hundred dollars worth of notes, we would have to say take some of the the gold, some of our capital, typically in the form of gold, and we would go to this we would go out to the market and we would have to buy say, uh, Texas treasury bonds, uh, if we were located in Texas, and take those treasury bonds to the comptroller of the currency of that state, deposit those bonds with the comptroller, at which point we would be permitted to issue uh, a corresponding amount of, of banknotes. So our notes were going to be secured by uh, state treasury notes. Now, if you think about the political economy of this, it, it makes a lot of sense. What you've essentially done is you've created a ready market. If you're a, if you're a state government official, you've created a ready market 
for your debt. So you don't have to have a hard, you're not gonna have as hard of a time trying to sell your debt, which means that you're probably gonna be able to borrow on more favorable, uh, favorable terms. So essentially uh, uh, what that meant was that uh, the notes were secured by uh, the, the, the bonds. Now, an issue with this, of course, uh, is that if something happened to the value of the bonds, if, for example, the state looked like it was going to default, then obviously the value of the bank's collateral went down, and that led to uh, a whole host of problems. Uh, another issue is that if states were retiring their uh, retiring their debt, right? Because uh, uh, if 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 they're if they're paying off their debt, then state government treasury bonds are going to start to sell at a at a premium or at least a higher price than they otherwise would, which made it harder for these banks to go out and get uh, the notes or to get the bonds they needed to back their notes, and this would lead to a shortage of currency, similar to what you had uh, that, you, that you had mentioned. Uh, mentioned earlier. So this free banking era was sort of a, a general trend, part of a general trend towards general incorporation. Uh, so there was a great paper by Wallace in the Journal of Economic History from 2005 that, that, that uh, talks about this. And what ends up happening at the, at the Civil War, uh, so the South, obviously, the, the North and the South, they, they split. Uh, and what happens in the North is that uh, we create what's called the, the national uh, banking system. And essentially what the national banking system was, was this sort of free banking system, but for all of the states in, in, uh, uh, in or, yeah, for all the banks in the country. So if you wanted to be a national bank, that is uh, issued national bank notes, you had to back those note issues by U.S. government treasury bonds in the same way that the old state free banks had to back their notes with the, the, the treasury bonds of the state in which they were located. And the, the U.S. government does this for similar reasons. It helps them fund uh, the Civil War, which is in part why they were able to pay for the Civil War a lot more through bond finance than they were through inflationary finance like uh, the South needed to uh, needed to rely on. Uh, so that's sort of a, a kind of a big picture. And then, of course, the national banking system was subject to many of the same problems that the free banking system was, which was that the currency wasn't very elastic. The U.S. government is paying off of its treasury debt, so it got harder for the national banks to go out and buy the debt uh, to, to back their notes. So actually, you had a shrinking uh, stock of, of national banks, or excuse me, national bank notes. And so that creates, again, currency shortages. And then eventually, we end up getting the creation of the Federal Reserve uh, in, in 1913. In terms of stability, would you say that the national banking system was much more stable? I mean, I, I, I don't know about it, of course, but I would guess that what it does is basically just makes everyone homogeneous. While maybe in the past, in the free banking, your luck depends if your state is basically economically successful or not. But in the national banking era, it depends on the whole country. So it, it makes the difference between New York and, I don't know, Vermont or California mm -hmm. much less pronounced. Is that right? That's a good question. I, I actually haven't looked at that. That's a very good question about whether or not the, the banking system was more stable under the free banking system versus the, the national banking system. Uh, there may be work, and, and I'm guessing there probably is. I'll need to go look into that. I don't, I don't, know, for, um, I don't know for certain. Uh, but in general, both systems still suffered from the same underlying problem, which was that the restrictions on note issue – caused a great deal of problems. The requiring that they be backed uh, uh, by by treasury uh, bonds created uh, a great deal of problems. Um, 
there was still also the issue of in general, banks were not allowed to branch and they were not allowed to compete across state lines. And so even though you may have uniform, you may have created a uniform system of, of note backing by backing the, the national treasury notes by U.S. Treasury bonds, you still have the issue that uh, certain banks might be subject to, say, negative agricultural shocks. Uh, so if you're a bank on the tier, for example, and there's a crop failure, uh, you probably were not able to diversify your your investment portfolio a great deal. And so you would be uh, negatively affected by uh, that type of uh, that type of system, and the other issue I think too to keep in mind is that during this time period, uh, what would end up happening is that if national banks, so national banks would keep some of their specie on deposit with large banks in the major financial centers, like New York, for example, um, those banks would then uh, uh, take those. Uh, deposits from the country banks, and then they would loan those loan those out for for various uh, 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 for various purposes. But if the country banks were subject to say a negative agricultural shock, and all of a sudden they need to get their deposits out of the New York banks, they go to the New York banks to get their deposits back. So you sort of get like this multiple run on the on on various parts of the banking system. So you still haven't dealt with that underlying issue, even if you you sort of uni- you've made uniform what what serves as collateral. Uh, so, uh, as far as the comparative uh, stability, I, I haven't looked into that, but I think that's an excellent question. I think the other thing that usually comes to mind when people think about the free banking era uh, is wildcat banking. So, just how big of a problem was that? And the idea behind wildcat banking was the following: you know, Fernando and I were not very scrupulous guys, so we say, "Hey, you know, give us your gold, and and we're going to give you some banknotes for the uh, that gold." And oh, by the way, if you want to redeem those banknotes, you know, we set up, you know, we're, we're 100 miles west of here. Just show up, you know, with your notes and we'll definitely give you your gold back. You know, and so people show up 100 miles west and they realize that they're in the middle of the forest and there's and there's nothing there. And essentially what had happened was that these wildcat banks had essentially just stolen people's money. Right. They 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 defrauded them. Uh, now, how big of an issue uh, was this? Well, it was certainly an issue. Uh, in Michigan, which, if you'll recall, is the first state that passes free banking in 1837. In fact, it was such an issue that they repealed free banking, I think, in 1839 or 1840, around that time. Uh, uh, but uh, Hugh Rockoff uh, uh, looked at this uh, and found that leaving aside uh, the case in Michigan, which was very bad, but leaving aside uh, Michigan, uh, the losses from failed banks, uh, the typical losses from failed banks, was about 15 cents on the dollar. Uh, so not certainly as as bad as you might make it. The, the wildcat stories make it out to be. The wildcat stories make it out to be as if the losses were a hundred percent when when uh, the typical losses look to be more uh, like they were fifteen percent. And one final thing that I think is worth pointing out too is that under the free banking system, deposits were not generally subject to the same sort of restrictions that the note issues were. Uh, and so banks that that diversified away from holding state government uh, bonds and move towards uh, uh, loans to, mer- to to manufacturers and loans to, in agriculture, try to diversify what they, who they were loaning money to and what sorts of projects they were loaning money to. They, in general, actually did okay during the, the free banking period. It was those banks that sort of stayed heavily – uh, heavily invested in state government bonds that didn't diversify that that had a problem. So uh, Matthew Jaremski in the JMCB, it's a 2010 paper, uh, definitely something to the, to look at uh, that looks at this uh, uh, this issue of why some banks seem to do pretty well and why others didn't. And the and the and the really the thing that emerges is that as you might expect, those banks that didn't diversify uh, did very poorly, and the banks that diversify seem to have done okay.
So would you say that the academic consensus nowadays is moving forward to the idea that the free banking era was not as bad as we thought like a decade ago? I don't know that it would be a consensus. Uh, I think that that among the among the economists that have looked at that era, I think there's a much more nuanced picture of what it looked like than than what was sort of the the common understanding several you know several decades ago. So we, you previously talked about the civil war, and you've done research on that as well. So I would like to ask you: one would expect that in terms of conflicts, always money is problematic, and all sides will tend to over-issue money, so there's always inflationary pressure. But you've done research about the Confederacy, about what happened there. Could you tell us about the Confederacy experience printing money? Sure. So both the Union and the Confederacy uh, relied on inflationary finance to to a certain degree to help fund the war. As I mentioned earlier, the Union uh, relied on it much less than the Confederacy did. Uh, the Union took the step of creating uh, what were called greenbacks or legal tender notes. These were a, a pure fiat currency. There was not – I mean there was sort of an implicit understanding that the U.S. would go back to the gold standard uh, after, the, after the war was over. But these notes were not explicitly tied to gold in any way. Uh, in the Confederacy, by contrast, uh, the notes themselves – in fact, if you go – Uh, on a Wikipedia, you can look up very high-quality pictures of these Confederate notes. These were essentially uh, uh, promises to pay gold. So if you read the front of the note, the note would say something like, redeemable for gold six months after a, a treaty with the United States. And as the war went on, of course, it went from six months to two years. Uh, but but the idea was that these these notes were basically a form of credit money that entitled the people that held these notes to redeem them for gold once the war was over, presuming the Confederacy was uh, successful. Uh, now, of course, obviously we know the Confederacy uh, was not successful, but but the, the point is, is that uh, as it became more evident that the Confederacy was not going to win the war, as you might expect, these, these va the value of these notes fell because the value of the notes was – it was contingent on people believing that they would be able to redeem them for gold at some point in the future. But of course, if the Confederacy loses, the political entity that issued those notes is going to cease to exist, and there's really no reason to believe that the United States government would feel compelled to make good on, um, to make good on these notes. So uh, what, what my co-author and I did in, in that particular paper is, is we – We sort of had the same logic that you had, which was that, look, if I put myself in the in the shoes of a government that's engaged in a civil war, that if you if you win, you get your you know, you get your political independence. But if you don't win, you cease to exist as a political entity. What's the downside to just printing uh, as much money as necessary to, to win the conflict? Uh, so it was sort of surprising to us to learn when we started looking into what happened that the Confederacy had actually pursued three different currency reforms over the course of the war. And these reforms essentially restricted the amount of currency that they were creating, which struck us as odd. Now, Occam's razor would suggest that uh, the reason they did that was that they were essentially printing too much money. Uh, they were on the wrong side of the quote-unquote Bailey curve after uh, after Martin Bailey, who uh, uh, kind of drew it in a paper in, 19, I think, 1956. Uh, and so the first thing we wanted to look at is, okay, well, were they on the right side or the wrong side? Now, unfortunately, we don't we didn't have enough observations to actually estimate a money demand function. Uh, we only really had quarterly data on the supply of, of treasury notes. So we weren't able to do that. But we did look at is we did sort of an event study to see how – 
the flow of seniorage from Confederate money creation was affected by these currency reforms. And what we find is that uh, the, the, the flow of seniorage responded in such a way that was consistent with the government being on the correct side of the Bailey curve. In other words, they were not printing too much money in terms of maximizing the amount of revenue that could be earned that way, which then raised the whole other question. Okay, well then, okay, why? What's what's going on? And so this is why it's important to keep in mind the difference between the Confederate Treasury notes, which were promises to pay for gold at some point in the future, versus the, the greenbacks from the Union, which at best had an implicit guarantee to go back to a gold standard at some point in the future, whereas with the graybacks, it's an explicit promise. So what's happening as the war goes on is that the Union is uh, uh, making inroads into the South. And what, what would happen is as the Union went into the South, the, the Confederate currency, which was called the grayback, stopped circulating in those areas, and they moved all to the interior of the Confederacy. So if you were in a Union-occupied part of the South, you were not going to be using graybacks. You might be using greenbacks. You might be using bills of exchange or merchant-issued money or coins or, or whatever, but you're not probably using the grayback. So the grayback, who owns the graybacks, are the people that live in the interior of the Confederacy. Those people, a large part of their wealth is tied up in holding these, uh, in holding these graybacks. So what we do in the paper uh, is we, we look at how uh, political representation affected the ways in which the Confederate legislature, legislators voted for the currency reforms. And the idea was pretty straightforward. If the Union, if, excuse me, if the Confederacy is successful, it's obviously going to have to uh, raise taxes after the war is over to essentially go buy the gold necessary to redeem all the notes uh, that, it, that it had issued. Now, if, if you're in the Confederacy's interior, you certainly uh, are are wanting that. To, you want to get paid back because you're holding a lot of those those graybacks. But if you are on the Confederacy's exterior, you don't hold graybacks anymore. Really, the only way to look at uh, at look at these future tax increases is that is is essentially from like a Ricardian equivalence perspective, which is that the more Confederate Treasury notes get issued, the larger your taxes are going to be. Once the war is over, if the Confederacy is successful and you're not holding the graybacks anymore, so you don't care about them really being redeemed. And so what we what we show in the paper is that the primary determinant of, of how the Confederate legislators voted for the currency reform was whether or not they represented an area that was under union control. And so what happened is, is that as the as the union advanced into the into the south, it became uh less politically tenable to to continue to support the creation of the of the banknotes of the treasury notes excuse me and so eventually what happened is that the coalition of people living under union control but still having representation in Richmond they eventually became to, they eventually came to dominate the confederate legislature and were able to push for these currency reforms that uh that reduced the growth rate of the of the uh, the treasury notes so one big takeaway i think from that is to again we need we need to incorporate these sorts of political economy aspects in our in our analysis of say inflationary finance it's not as if the decision to print money is made in a political vacuum or by a single person in the case of the confederacy it was still subject to democratic politics and as the different coalitions shifted and gained strength or or lost strength that was what uh, determined how they were going to continue to print those notes and we don't want to make the the claim 
that the Confederacy would have won, for example, if it had printed more money than it did. But it certainly seems reasonable that the war could have gone on for a bit longer had they relied more on inflationary finance uh, than, than they did. Those counterfactuals are always fascinating, just imaginary scenarios. Just to close, and tying this with the importance of political economy, but looking into the future, I would like to ask you, what do you think about the future of money and the private money specifically? Because there has been kind of a renewal of interest in the topic because of the rise of cryptocurrencies in the last 15 years, 20 years, something like that. And this is tied to our previous discussion about the inside and outside money. What would you say is the relevance of monetary history in, to learn something from the past to, to actually apply it into the future in this case? So I think I think one, one big thing that, that comes out of studying monetary history is, is looking at those, especially in the context of private money, uh, privately produced outside and inside money, is we need to look at those uh, examples that we have of countries that, that did fairly well, Canada being sort of a quintessential example here, uh, and saying, okay, so what, what did they do right so that their financial system seemed to work pretty well? If we're going to move in a certain direction, it's important that our financial institutions, like the laws governing our financial institutions, are, are updated in such a way so as to avoid the sort of problems that the U.S. was plagued by in the 19th in the 19th century, so those problems were not not because of the gold standard. Because again, Canada was on the gold standard too and didn't have those problems. So something else was going on there. So I think looking at examples of successful systems of private money and looking at how we can reform our own systems to look a little bit more like that is one thing we can learn from history. I think another, in the case of cryptocurrencies, for example, is understanding how com how commodity monies worked, what their pros and if cons were, they're not perfect, right? All systems involve, uh, uh, involve trade-offs and, and thinking about the extent to which different cryptocurrencies are able to mimic the behavior of commodity money uh, or not. So for example, uh, I know a little bit about uh, Bitcoin. I'm, I'm by far from an expert on it, but my understanding is that one of its limitations is that Uh, it doesn't have the sort of built-in supply mechanism that the gold standard did, which is that when the demand for monetary gold went up, that created an incentive for gold miners to dig more gold out of the ground. And as a result, the, the, the relative price of gold was, was tended to be mean reverting. And so there was an inbuilt price stability mechanism. Uh, that sort of system doesn't exist with, uh, with Bitcoin, for example, because uh, the way the algorithm works is that as uh, – As, when there's an increase in demand for Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin goes up. Bitcoin miners try to, to try to mine more Bitcoin, but the algorithm adapts to the effort put out by the miners to slow the process to keep the Bitcoin releases on the predetermined uh, path. So when thinking about the possibility of, say, like a cryptocurrency outside money regime with privately issued inside money that's redeemable or backed by cryptocurrencies, I think we want to have a really solid understanding of how commodity money systems worked and see if it's possible, and it might not be, to mimic the beneficial uh, beneficial uh, elements of, of a commodity money with a, with a cryptocurrency. And my very limited, and I'll definitely say very limited, understanding of, of, of cryptocurrencies uh, is that as of right now, many of them do not have that sort of uh, inbuilt supply mechanism Uh, to create that mean reverting property of, of commodity money that I think is one of its um, one of its strongest features. Well, 
thank you very much, Brian. It has been quite nice talking to you. Nice to talk to you, too. Defining the meaning of money in abstract is quite complex. History helps by putting concrete cases into the spotlight. Today we may think cryptocurrencies are novel alternatives to the standard national monies. However, looking into history allows us to understand that in fact national monies are the novelty. Monetary systems are always ever-evolving. Looking into the pros and cons of each with an historical perspective gives us an edge in this never-ending search to find the most optimal. This has been Pence Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.